Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Mike Vorkanoff is in the building. Mike, is this your debut on the Game Theory Podcast? I believe it is. I've been waiting for this for so long. I'm just happy to be on. I'm just excited. Mike and I have been friends for a while. And for whatever reason, it's just always been uh, a situation where I haven't had you on and i don't know why that is but i'm excited to have you on here we've got a perfect topic so mike is the nba business reporter for the athletic and we have some business to attend to the nba did a business over the weekend they decided to agree to a new collective bargaining agreement that agreement will run from the 2023 2024 season until there is a mutual opt-out in i believe the 2029 30 season does that sound right to you, Mike? Yep. Uh, goes through seven years. You can opt out after six if you want, and we can just do this all over again. I love it, but we're good for six. That's the key. Yeah. The good news is that we have six years plus this playoffs of labor peace. And in the NBA, it is always good when we have labor peace. First, though, we're going to talk very briefly about the Final Four and about Connecticut winning the national title. Very small amount of time because Mike, uh, Mike admitted to me that he he may have fallen asleep because Mike has two small kids. Like it's fine, right? Listen, two, I believe I have two. I'm washed. I'm not afraid to admit it. It is what it is. I I watched some of it. Uh, I liked some of what I saw. The other part literally made me fall asleep. <laughs> uh, I believe the San Diego State part is probably what made you fall asleep <sighs> in that game. So. We're going to start with the national title game. Then we're going to get into some of the things that have been reported about the new collective bargaining agreement and just kind of discuss everything that we know about where the league is going in the future and what some of these things mean moving forward for the league. Okay. National title game. Connecticut wins, I believe, by 17. I think it was 76 to 59 was the final score. Adama Sonogo wins most outstanding player. I think it was a completely reasonable selection. I think he was the most consistent player over the course of the NCAA tournament. And by the way, Connecticut was the most consistent tournament over the course of the tournament itself. And I think there is a very real case outside of a blip in January was the most consistent team in college basketball this season. If you go back and you look, November, December, they were the best team in the country. They won all of their non-conference games by at least double digits. They have this weird January where they lose like six games. And then February and March, they are again the best team in the country. They lose two games, I think, during that time. They beat a ton of really good teams. This was the best team in the country, in my opinion, throughout the course of the season. I think they're a well-deserving champion. They just had a weird January. And at that point, anything can happen. So I guess that you watch a little bit of college basketball. You don't watch a lot of college basketball. You watched a bit of this NCAA tournament, not a crazy amount of this NCAA tournament. As someone who can do like more of a 50,000-foot view than I can on all of this, what is your just immediate takeaway from Connecticut seeing them play last night? Well, well up front, I want to throw in that uh, most of my college basketball watching is through the Big Ten. And that this year, especially, was a really bad way to get into college basketball. Yeah. But, <clears throat> but uh, I, so at least I can say I was least surprised that Purdue lost early. Uh, because I've watched them play so many times this year, and that could have told you that was coming. You know, I thought UConn was really good. I, I, as you said, they had a really interesting season profile, right? They seemed like far and away the best team in college basketball early on. They had that blip in the middle of the season, 
And that really seemed to uh, kind of crater their reputation nationwide. Like as we, as everyone was talking about the brackets coming in, UConn didn't seem to get a lot of respect, me included. Um, but I thought in a season like this, where it was really, really level all across the country, right? There was no great team. Um, you know, there was no truly great player. And I, I don't throw, you know, no, no shade to, to Zach Eady, but I, I think he was national player of the year, but it, not in the conventional sense. It made sense that like UConn wins this and you watch him play, especially over the final four. And that was probably the most up close I've seen him watch them. They had a really talented roster, right? You know, from, uh, from Jackson to Jordan Hawkins, um, to everybody else. And it makes sense why they won because they could play two ways. Uh, you know, Hawkins is a great shooter, a great movement shooter too. Jackson's such a great passer. And I think that's just the talent when there's nobody in college basketball, maybe aside from Brandon Miller, who's like a legit stud lottery pick, then, then stuff like this happens, right? Where you just have more kind of uh, talent across the roster rather than top level, really pulling a team to a title. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think I just want to kind of dive into how they built this team. I think it's just really, really fascinating. So five of these guys are guys that this staff, Dan Hurley, Kamani Young, Luke Murray, uh, Tom Moore, uh, recruited. And those guys are, uh, you know, Adama Sonogo, Andre Jackson, Jordan Hawkins, Alex Caravan. And um, I'm missing one off the top of my head. It is, oh, why, why is my brain failing me? at this specific juncture. Uh, I'll have to think about it in a second here as soon as I get to the other three. Uh, And then transfers, they bring in three in the offseason. They bring in Tristan Newton, Naheem Aline, and uh, why is my brain not working here, Mike? It is. If if I was good and competent, I would be able to help you and just throw you a lifeline right now. Yeah, it's Joey Calcaterra is the third one. Uh, And the the fifth recruit is Donovan Klingon, obviously. So they go essentially five for nine recruiting in three years where they don't just recruit like, you know, singles and stuff. Every single one of those guys is at least like a triple. I would say Mm -hmm. that they recruited. Uh, Adam Sonogo is a home run. Jordan Hawkins is a home run. If you get a first round pick that is like a borderline top 50 recruit, that's home run to me. Uh, Andre Jackson's probably a triple Donovan Klingon, I think is probably a home run. Uh, we'll see if he ends up declaring for the draft this year or not. I think that that remains to be seen. Uh, and then Alex Caravan looks like a really solid, you know, double or triple potentially long term. Uh, and then the other thing that they valued last offseason that I think is really interesting is there were quite a few guys that left last offseason. Jalen Gaffney went from Connecticut to Florida Atlantic, ended up still in the final four, right? But decided to leave for greener pastures. Corey Floyd left and went to uh, Providence. Cook Cook went to Georgetown, if my memory serves. And then uh, Rasul Diggins, I think, went to UMass. And for people who don't necessarily remember, there was a bit of a backlash to this within the Connecticut fan base. There was oh my God, like we're losing all these recruits. The world isn't falling, but we are in the midst of, you know, Dan Hurley potentially struggling to keep guys on the roster that he recruited and kept. You're recruited and decided to bring in. And what my response to those fans was, fans were like even a little bit disappointed about getting Tristan Newton at the time. And I was just like, look, Tristan Newton's a top 15, top 10 transfer in the country. Right now, he averaged like 17 and five at uh, East Carolina last year. 
this is a home run. You essentially get one of the top 10 to 15 transfers in the country, plus you get three open roster spots to be able to go and fill out your roster around a core of Tristan Newton, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson, Adam Sinogo. And then you have Donovan Klingon coming in as well. That should be enough to be able to build a roster. They then go out and they get Naheem Aline, a perfect floor spacer. They go out and they get Joey Calcaterra, a perfect floor spacer, older guy. Honestly, was considered kind of a reach for them to take out of the WCC at San Diego. They knew how they wanted to play, though. They knew that they they knew the skill set that they needed in order to make this roster fit. They knew that to make Sonogo and Klingon the most valuable guys they could be on the interior, they needed floor spacing. They go out and get Nahimaline, 40% three-point shooter. Calcaterra, 40% three-point shooter. You have your lead guard in Tristan Newton that you needed to make things work, right? I think that they did just about a perfect job of building out this roster across the board in order to find the most success for this roster long-term. And I guess that where I would finish is that schools need to value much in the same way that NBA teams value open cap space. Schools need to value open scholarship spots, particularly schools that are Connecticut size or bigger. If a guy isn't working, there is real value to his scholarship spot being open now because of how prevalent the transfer portal is. And you have to hit recruits undeniably. I think that the backbone of any national title is going to come from guys that you recruit and keep around. Because I think that these guys need to grow and play together and have high level success. But when you're in the portal, I think that you can find guys that are able to win. Uh, there is a bit of an NBAification about all of this, though, that I think is interesting in terms of roster building. Does any of that ring any bell for you, Mike, as I go through this? No, it does. But the thing that makes me think, too, is when you mentioned about kind of essentially what you're talking about is roster churn, right? That's something that we see in professional sports. And I think maybe it's a little less unseemly now because we are in an NIL era, right? Like I think back to, I think it was when UConn got Andre Drummond, it was like late August, early September. And they, I think it was Jim Calhoun basically started running off guys from the roster to open up scholarship spots because it came so late in the recruiting cycle. And that at that point in time, just to me was like very amoral and very unseemly because of the situation that athletes (laughs) were in in college sports, right? Like you're kicking guys off the team who have nothing else. They just have a scholarship, which you're not even honoring. Um, Now, because there is so much player driven churn, I think team driven churn is the obvious counterbalance to that. And you do have to value those roster spots, right? You never know who's going to hit the transfer portal. Um, you never know how your roster is going to change, especially over the spring months, maybe even to, to summer now, like things get crazy. We see stuff happen all the time. Uh, and, and I think UConn did such a great job of that. And on top of it, they put together a team that fit really well, right? Like the yeah. pieces all fit in terms of how they played um, really well with the, you know, not only like a lead guard, but a, a passing guard. You had Jordan Hawkins who offered shooting and on the move and they had a big man, right? Um, and to hit that level of continuity quickly um, and to be able to have a cohesive roster like that, you are going to have to churn, right? Like that's what you have to do. The transfer portal allows you to uh, reestablish yourself and find that right mix quicker than it ever has before. 
I think that's dead on. The last thing I'll just say on UConn is I think this is a perfect college basketball team, essentially, for the modern day Yeah. in terms of how I would build a college basketball team. If you look around the transfer portal right now, I know this, I do transfer rankings uh, and spend way too much time on them. There are a lot of small guards right now in the portal. Guys like Max A. Smith, Jalen Cook, and guys that I really like, and honestly, guys that I've ranked very highly in the transfer portal because they're absolute floor raisers and not every team is competing for a national title. Let's just be completely real about that, right? I think that if I was building a team in college basketball, I would want to build it exactly like Connecticut did. You are six foot five or bigger across every position. Mm -hmm. You are super athletic. You are aggressive defensively. You have elite level rim protection in Adama Sonogo and Donovan Klingon. You have elite level post scoring because of Sonogo particularly. You're an elite level rebounding team. Uh, Sonogo and Klingon combined to create for Connecticut the best offensive rebounding team in college basketball this season. You have elite level shooting and floor spacing. Alex Caravan, Jordan Hawkins, Naheem Aleen, Joey Calcaterra, Tristan Newton can shoot. You also have just enough playmaking to get by. And I think the Connecticut's coaching staff, again, particularly on the offensive end with the way that they increased ball movement and increased ball flow uh, and had all sorts of crazy off-ball actions, they utilized their roster and the skills of their roster to the absolute best possible way that they could and i think that they deserve an immense amount of credit for that but i also think that you know dan hurley throughout this process has just been like look when you have like a lot of pros it's kind of easy and look they they do have a lot of pros on the roster but they don't have like a no doubter like nba all-star on this roster like i think both jordan hawkins and donovan Klingon are going to be first round picks you know whether or not it's 2024 or not for donovan Klingon, we'll see he'll make a decision like that at some point but i think there's just a lot that can be learned from this connecticut champion in terms of building a modern college basketball team today okay well do you want to go again no, I was going to say, to me, what's like interesting is I, I, we saw it last year with Oscar Toshibwe coming back and Hunter Dickinson and Armando Baycott, right? Is that yeah. I think there's, I think we saw this in college basketball a little, a little bit this season too, is there's the lure of tethering yourself too much to the big man and how your team and especially your offense looks. I think what UConn did was put enough playmaking, as you said, uh, and basically nba the team enough to differentiate from just being lured in by what college basketball can offer by throwing, by having an offensive center around, like just throw it into the big man, right? Like they had enough shooting, they had enough ball handling, they had enough size and athleticism um, to make it work, especially for a team that didn't have like three potential lottery picks. And, you know, you go back to last season as well, by the way, Kansas basically only played like two guys that were relatively small in Dewan Harris and Remy Martin. And they only had one of those guys on the court at once typically. Uh, but you look across the board, Oshag Baji, Christian Brown, KJ Adams, David McCormick, Jalen Wilson, certainly all those guys are six foot six or bigger. Go mm-hmm. get six foot six guys or taller who are athletic, who can shoot, who can space the floor, who you can do a lot of different stuff with. It's very similar to the NBA at this point. I think that people think of college basketball as being a different sport than the NBA and because of the geometry of the court, it is somewhat different, but it's quickly, they're quickly becoming closer again, I think in terms of the teams that find success at the highest level. Okay. 
Now let's take a quick commercial break and then we're going to dive into the CBA stuff because this is really what I had Mike to talk on to talk about because he's been doing great reporting on this. And I think that there is just a number of things that I have immense questions on. Okay, we're back. Mike, let's dive into the CBA. So I'll do this. I will give you the floor. Can you give me some background, I guess? Let's start with this. Can you give me some background on how this came together? Yeah, I mean, this has been, they've been negotiating for a while now, right? We've had two different opt-out dates. It was originally set for December 15th. Then they pushed it to February 8th. Then we had our latest opt-out deadline, March 31st, this past Friday night at midnight, right? And really the backbone of this negotiation, to me, it seems like, has been centered around um, two things. For the league, it really seems their biggest aim here was to make it harder for the highest spending teams in the NBA. So you're talking about your Warriors, your Clippers, um, your Nets before they started sloughing off millions of dollars before this trade deadline uh, and make it harder for them to keep accruing salary as they have been, right? Because we've seen that financial penalties didn't work, right? Luxury tax, uh, more punitive luxury tax brackets, more punitive uh, repeater taxes, all that stuff didn't, didn't make it hard enough for them. So the league sought a way to do it. You know, there was obviously the upper spending limit, aka a hard cap thrown out there early on. Uh, that was something the PA was never going to go for. Uh, the hard cap to them is like, you know, the it, it's just like the end all be all. We will never do this Can't situation. Do yeah. yeah. So they were never going to go there. Right. And so after that, it was, all right, what else can the NBA Institute to get its aims put in there? And I think for the PA, it was two things. It was one, obviously staving off a hard cap, which they did effectively, but it was also uh, wealth building for the players, right? Like that's been a big thing. That was something when Tamika Tramago came in as executive director and I got a chance to speak to her in the first few weeks in office. That was something that she mentioned. It was like finding new ways. And that was her pitch during the whole hiring process too, was finding new ways for the players to make more money, right? To accrue the kind of generational wealth that they've been making as salaries from their teams, but also as entrepreneurs that they all really think that they are now, right? So I think it was those two aims that they try to counterbalance. And in negotiation, obviously, you're going to give up some stuff. You have to give up some stuff to get some stuff, right? From both sides. And it seems like that's kind of where they landed. Um, in the CBA was, uh, we can get into it, but I'm sure you have some top line thoughts about where it all ended up as we see the details come out and we'll have a term sheet written up, you know, possibly this week. Um, the league has made it much harder for those teams like the Warriors and the Clippers uh, to keep doing what they're doing. And the players have found a lot of ways now to make money, not only from the salary that they're going to get, the BRI hasn't moved. It's still in that 49 to 51 band, but it really, it's been in, you know around 51%. But now they have other um, avenues to make money outside of the court. Yeah, let's start there. Let's start maybe from the player side, because I think that the internal ownership dynamics of this thing are fascinating and like their their own kind of argument because it was right. almost to me it felt like almost like there were owners pitted against other owners in this like the, the owner it was like you know multiple it was a two two-pronged approach in terms of this negotiation where it was like 
the owners need to get on the same page and have their own negotiation internally. And then they have to bring that negotiation and what their deal points are to the players. And then the players have to like come back to the owners and kind of make some decisions on that. Like even more so than getting the players all on the same page, as I think like CJ McCollum kind of brought up in a uh, post game you know, uh, availability he had, you know, if any player wants to come to me and like negotiate, like by all means, like we would love more substantive feedback from the players. But I think it is very intriguing, the owner versus owner battle, but let's talk about the player side first. Cause I think the players are ultimately what I care about. If I'm being completely honest, uh, the things that struck me as interesting within this entire CBA feels like to me at the very least the goal was to try and lift the pile of money within basketball related income there's no way that i think the bri split was going to change realistically at least like to a significant extent within these negotiations so the goal for players i think was to try and lift the pool itself and the biggest thing that i think i saw that got reported and i believe this was from espn uh it was reported that the licensing and team league revenue estimated to be worth 160 million for the 2023-24 season will be added into the basketball related income pile so essentially the players lifted that BRI pile by $160 million, uh, which will then be split basically in half. And that's going to result in something like 2.6 to 2.7 million extra dollars within the salary cap, which ultimately filters back to the players at the end of the day. That's like a huge win. I think for the players to basically get an extra $160 million added to the BRI pile. Like that, that is an enormous, like, unmitigated win and what i think you'll find within this conversation i'm not going to refer to much as like wins and losses here because we don't have the full deal yet (laughs) right they haven't written it yet (laughs) yeah so can you explain a little bit more about that like we need to maybe give some people some context on how this is all happening yeah and this is this is the hard part too because it's understanding the set of levers too right like you know, the, the players they get, the licensing dollars, the team and league licensing dollars thrown into um, the, the pile of BRI, as you said. So it'll be probably about $80 million in year one. And obviously that's going to keep growing over the course of the CBA. Um, from what I understand, there are some set offs as well in terms of what uh, the league got. You know, for the league, it was very important to update the CBA um, for the sake of the media deal, basically, because the media has changed so much. And we heard Adam Silver talk about it. Uh, last week too it was like the reason why they wanted to get this deal done now and this is a question i asked too is um they could have had this thing just last for another year right like this was kind of a false deadline this this need to opt out by friday night which is the nba was hanging over the negotiations right like adam silver went out there publicly saying hey we're gonna opt out if we don't get a deal done um and the, the reason why they wanted to do that was they basically wanted to update the cba so they can update the way that revenue and costs uh, are allotted now for the whole media situation, not just the national media rights deal, which is going to start in 2025. Um, and you'll have, you know, either new TV partners or more TV partners and whatever all that looks like. But the local 
rights matter too, right? We've seen the RSN market just completely waylaid. We have 16 teams that are with Diamond Sports. Uh, Diamond Sports is now in bankruptcy court. Uh, the NBA says for now, at least, they'll keep getting paid out as per their normal contracts. Um, that's their expectation, but there's also a chance things go wrong, uh, depending on the very, very arcane uh, bankruptcy court process, which I'm not completely an expert in yet, but there are still opportunities for <laughs> to go wrong. Um, and, and opportunities for you to become an expert. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> there are all these things I don't want to be an expert in, bankruptcy court being one of them, but yes, I'm learning more about it as we go along. Um, so yeah, the thinking now is that they'll have to continue to get paid out you know, for the rest of the season and perhaps beyond that as per the contracts that they've had with Diamond Sports. But Diamond Sports might just be in a position in a few months where they can't make good on the contracts that they have. And that'll really screw things up, right, in terms of the local RSN market. Even, in, you know, you had uh, Warner Brothers Discovery get out of two of its RSNs. Uh, you have even in the teams that don't have deals with Diamond Sports or with Warner Brothers, like MSG has not been on Comcast for, I think, two full seasons now. Uh, yeah, Nuggets wow. fans have not been able to watch the Nuggets for yeah. this is year year four, uh, right? Like they've missed the entire Nikola Jokic MVP era pretty much. Like half of the city has just not had access to that. More than that, I believe, actually. Uh, so the NBA has been trying to really reformat what its local broadcasts look like. It takes some financial investment into that to change that. So I think that's been driving why they wanted to get this done now. And as you said, that takes offset. So I think now... Maybe part of that is the NBA being willing to throw licensing um, dollars into that to increase the BRI. The BRI is obviously going to continue to keep growing. It was $8.9 billion uh, for the uh, last season, right? We'll see where it lands at this year. They had $10 billion in revenue overall for the NBA last year. Um, and yeah, we're going to see where this all goes. Like BRI is going to continue to grow. And I think it was important for the NBA to also get essentially a way to make money outside of just the BRI and to find a way uh, to really take some ownership um, in the growth of the NBA outside of just the dollars allotted through basketball income, basketball revenue. Yeah. So I guess like, let's, let's pause the CBA stuff very briefly and just like hit this RSN thing very quick. Cause I think that sure. that is very uh, simple. Time. Yeah, right. I, I think like there could be a whole episode on this and like maybe I'll have uh, you come on for another episode on this at some point. But as a brief overview, can you explain for people what's happening with the RSN market uh, and why this is so important to NBA teams uh, beyond what you just said? Because I think that that is like an enormous hanging cloud over the NBA right now that could like result in like a hailstorm essentially yeah so i mean look everyone i think it's natural to think of like everyone thinking about the national tv deals as the big money maker for the league and it is but you know they make about i think uh, i want to say roughly 2.4 billion dollars per year for the league if you look at what the bra was last year you're talking about maybe somewhere around the third um of that revenue for teams right like and a lot of teams still depend on the tens of millions of dollars that they get from their local RSNs, right? Um, they still need that money to make payroll. They still need that money to pay its employees for all of its revenue streams. And we've seen the RSN market in this great era of upheaval right now. Diamond Sports represent uh, has deals with 16 NBA teams. So you're talking about more than half the league. Um, there were kind of uh, 
availability issues in other markets, regardless of who your RSN was, just being able to watch them because of either the arcane, um, you know, rules for blackouts and who's not on what, uh, basically what cable provider, right? Like, and, and it's really come to a head where you've had a lot of people unhappy with how they're able to watch their games or if they can watch their games. And we've seen um, the NBA kind of lean into trying to make streaming happen in local markets. Uh, you saw MSG launch, M- and yes, both in New York launch um, digital streaming within their New York markets where now you can sign up for an app basically and just watch the Knicks or Nets in New York and the New York market uh, online, right? Like that's kind of the slow start of people being able to watch it in different ways. I think the Jazz, uh, the COO of the Jazz told me that next year they're going to go to a hybrid model where they'll have a TV partner and they'll have some kind of streaming partner, right? And this is what the NBA is slowly, slowly going towards. It will take time. It will take investment. Uh, It will cost teams money in the process because the fees that they get from the RSNs are either going to evaporate if your RSN evaporates, or they're just going to get much smaller if you have to go to somewhere else, or if they're not able to pay, or just the marketplace goes down, right? Um, And that's going to affect teams and how much money they have. And, you know, it's not going to get to the point maybe of where baseball is, I think is in a much more precarious spot, Uh, but it'll still have some effect on teams. And the NBA is in a transition period where they're basically trying to stabilize how local broadcasts work. They're not there yet. And that's something that they wanted to account for as quickly as they can. And, you know, maybe at some point we'll get to where you have direct consumer products and all, you know, for all 28 cities. Um, But we're at the very early beginning stage of that. And it's going to take investments financially from both the league and from individual teams to be able to do that. So speaking of investments, I'm glad that you gave me that beautiful segue opportunity. As you and Sham Sharania reported, uh, the league's new collective bargaining agreement will give players the ability to invest in NBA and WNBA teams, as well as promote and or invest in sports betting and cannabis companies, sources tell The Athletic. And then Shams followed it up quickly with how this will work. Sources say players will be able to invest in NBA slash WNBA teams via the NBPA's selected private equity firm, an unprecedented opportunity in U.S. sports, and do endorsement deals with sports betting companies with complete separation from the gambling component. So that's a lot to dive into there on its own. It features into the idea of wealth building for players that you discussed very early in our conversation here. When I saw this, I had some questions. (laughs) Uh, I felt like to make this work even remotely, there were going to have to be some very significant guardrails put in place. Yeah. Uh, So, I don't know what those guardrails are yet beyond this private equity firm that it feels like the NBA will be employing. But my immediate reaction to this tweet was twofold. Basically, A, we're going to get some bullshit like Kevin Durant signing a, you know, two year, $8 million contract than getting like 1% equity in the Phoenix Suns or something like that. Uh, Cause 1% equity in the Phoenix Suns is worth, you know, probably God knows like 50 million on its own. Right. Uh, and then on top of it, the sports betting side is I don't really care about this because I think I have a better feel for the sports betting industry. Like I, you know, do work with tab and I know like the separation of powers that kind of comes into play there with the content creation side versus the, uh, 
like market building side of sports betting companies. But I felt like this was a thing that was just going to create a lot of a lot of uncertainty in the minds of fans regarding like how how hard players are playing in games and whether or not uh, they're taking it seriously, whether or not they're throwing games, essentially questions about the integrity of the game uh, in some fans' minds. And while I personally think that that's like bullshit and I can't see a player tossing away like hundreds of millions of dollars to like gamble uh, on basketball games, unless you're gambling like million dollars per game. I also think that, and it's just really hard to find like sports books that will take million dollar like bets per game, uh, especially when you're like in business with them and like everything. But like beyond that, it felt like a real way for enemies of the league. Let's call them people who are not people who are conspiratorial by nature. People who uh, want to try and find the worst in the league to question the integrity of the league in a way that it surprised me that the NBA was willing to go down this road. Well, I mean, for, I don't think unless I, I haven't seen anything, but I think players still can't bet. Right. Like, so that, that rule is still in place. Um, yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, that would, to me, raise the biggest issue of the integrity of the game. Right. But they still can't bet. Um, they can yeah. sponsor sports books. You know, if uh, player X wants to start sponsoring, you know, sports book X, uh, yeah. just like they do, uh, you know, like shoes or whatever that is totally. now open to them where they, where they hadn't been before. I, I agree with you. I think, I don't really think it's going to be an issue, uh, actual integrity of the game. Like who would throw away, you're, you're talking about guys who are in the middle of the league now being able to make over a hundred million dollars over the course of their life. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just, just being a guy who makes the mid level for like five, six yeah, years. Like, that's like the hundred, the hundred and fiftieth best player in the NBA is going to be like a nine figure player now. Right, right. So, like, the amount of money that, that they can gain from their NBA salary is not going to be anywhere close from the sponsorship deal that they can sign with, like, DraftKings or FanDuel or whatever. Right. Um, so I, I don't think that's going to be a thing. But I think it does open more, you know, another can of worms for the league in terms of just perception, right? Like, we've seen leagues get further into bed with betting companies, right? Like that always opens yourself up to criticism of some sort. Now we see the players are going to be able to do it too. In some sense, it does have a level of fairness, right? If the NBA and its teams can profit from all of these betting companies, why yeah. not the players, right? Like again, still no one can bet, right? Like players can't bet, coaches can't bet, yeah. team execs can't bet. So that's still in place. Uh, they're all just kind of going, making money from saying, hey, Tweet on this, uh, click on this link in my tweet, and you get a free yep. sign up account so you can lose your money at this sports book. Uh, that's all going to be there. And I think that's kind of where this whole sports betting, um, this new opening into being a sponsor for a sports, bet, a sports book or being a small, having a small investment stake in that will come from. And I think the money that they can potentially make from that is not going to be anywhere near the money that can make they can make from um, their NBA contracts. You know, like, and if you're just going to, view it in that sense, like the utilitarian sense, I'm going to make a lot more money from basketball than from anything else. And that's what you're going to try to value. Yeah. No, I think that that's all, those are all really, really good points. Uh, the investment side is just strange to me. And I like what happens when, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think like what happens if 
the Mavs give Luca a you know zero point zero five percent stake in the Mavs, and then you know he leaves and goes to the Rockets or some shit like that. I, right? I don't think that's going to happen either. I think it's going to be done. And again, like the hard part is I don't think all the details are completely ironed out yet, from what I understand. Right. But I think <clears throat> the way that investments are going to work is that there's going to be. Um, basically a fund which players can themselves put money into um, and that so they're not investing with in an individual team right so you can't right. just then like okay. like you said if you're Luca you hit free agency be like well I know I have uh, an investment in uh, the magic right let me go sign with the magic to right. increase that the value of that equity I, I think it's going to be a lot more almost like a trust in some degree um, yeah. more yeah. so than it is you know, in that individual ownership. And it, I, I was talking to Michelle Roberts about it a few years ago when she was leaving the office as executive director. And that was her big regret for not being able to get that done during her term. And one of the ideas she proposed was almost like an NBA equity stake in teams so that when they do sell out, um, you know, like in the case of the Suns, when Robert Sarver sells out, players own, I don't know, one, 2%, they get to cash out a little bit in the course of that yeah. sale too. And so again, we'll see what the final details look like, but I think it's more that kind of institutional way than it is um, a player having a direct investment stake in a team. And Bryce Simon asks this question. I mean, uh, will players be able to come investors or own actual equity in sports betting sites? Uh, yeah, I, I believe that they can. I, I don't know uh, to what percentage, but I believe that they'll have a um, an ability to invest in a sports company, in a sports betting company. Interesting. Okay. That's very interesting information. I mean, I, I, this is why I ask you, this is why, this is why you're on the show to answer all of these random questions I have. Okay. And by the way, like there are some answers, not like complete answers yet, which is always fun. Okay. Let's talk about a few more things that will impact the players more on the team building side. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, they've agreed to increase the upper limits on extensions from a 120% increase on final year salary to a 140% increase on final year salary. So for instance, under the current rules, Jalen Brown would be eligible to sign a four year, $165 million contract. Uh, But with the extension rules increased to 140%, Brown would be able to reach a four year, $189 million contract. agreement then which is according to bobby mark shout out bobby for calculating that obviously but these are big changes and they will allow teams that have incumbent stars to be able to retain them a little bit more easily without them hitting the market i think that's like an incredibly important aspect of this uh negotiation yeah i think the a big part of the cba was driven towards helping teams be able to retain their players, right? You know, through that. So maybe the Hawks have a better chance of retaining DeJounte Murray uh, when his contract is up. Maybe the Kings have a better chance of not having Sabonis hit free agency when his contract is up, right? Like when you – it gives you a better chance to almost reward a team for being being able to lock in a player and develop them into an all-star level player, um, even if you didn't expect it, right? And – I, you know, there's other changes too. You know, I think that there's a larger mid-level exception now, um, of course, for those teams that are not over that second apron. Um, the rookie extensions, you can now do a five-year extension with rookies. Um, <clears throat> you, before this, it was just four years unless you were the designated max guy, right? Like, so th- I think they've opened up avenues to be able to help teams keep their players uh, by giving them 
larger, longer extensions than they could under the current CBA that we're under. Well, I'm really glad that you brought up the idea of the quote unquote, like rookie uh, super max contract players, right? Like uh, the NBA and NBPA agreed to eliminate restrictions that limited a team to two designated super max contract players on a roster. So essentially the Cavs who already have Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland under roster would have had to trade one of those two in order to sign Evan Moley to a super max contract. Mm-hmm which is fucking crazy. Like the Cavs should absolutely not have been like penalized for getting an incredible Donovan Mitchell trade and then drafting Darius Garland and Evan Mobley. Yeah. That's fucking crazy to me. Like, I'm glad that we finally have some sense brought into this, right? Uh, you know, another team that this could impact long-term is Oklahoma City, particularly. This this entire CBA benefits Oklahoma City for way, reasons we'll get to momentarily. But I think that it's really, really important, the fact that Oklahoma City now, and, you know, it's all going to be incumbent upon ownership to make a decision to do this. But right now, they have four guys on their roster alone before accounting for the like future 15 first round picks that they have they have four guys on their roster alone that right now i think project is like max or borderline ish max players in shea gildas alexander jalen williams josh giddy and chet holmgren so like the fact that they're going to be able to theoretically sign all of those guys to 25 percent maxes is what should happen. Like this, this is right. how this should be. If you draft as well as Oklahoma City has, you should get to retain those players long term if you want to retain them. Yeah, and I think the other thing is like when Oklahoma City gives out four max contracts and now they're above that second apron, they'll still have the ability to re-sign, you know, whatever draft pick they make and keep him too, right? So like for all the punitive measures of the uh, second apron it still allows them to re-sign their own players. Um, it doesn't allow you to hit the buyout market, which I don't really think is that big of a loss for most teams. You know, there's very few players that are actually good that come out of that. And, you know, there's some restrictions on how for how far out you can trade a pick. But I think that's the big thing from this is that, like, if you're a team that's good at drafting and developing, it should probably help you keep the guys that you get into your organization. Um it was wild to me that they had a restriction on the designated rookie extensions to begin with. Like, I don't know who thought that through in the original CBA or the past CBA, but that was not a good idea. Yeah, it was a really bad idea. I, I think the idea was that like these guys would try and force themselves to like big markets. And thus we wanted to try and stop them from being able to like team up together on uh, like max rookie extensions or, you know, designated yeah designated extensions it was silly at the time the final thing here for the players uh before we get into like the ownership stuff is we're gonna get three two-way contracts not just two two-way contracts i think that that is a very very important piece of this and then additionally there is now a second round exception where you can sign a player to a rostered agreement instead of uh having to dip into the mid-level exception to be able to do that so for instance, the Lakers this summer had to dip into their mid-level to sign Max Christie and thus uh, couldn't give someone like a full mid-level exception to be able to do so without, you know, forcing Max Christie to sit in the G League for a year and like not be on their roster and thus infuriate his representation and everything that comes with that. I think that that is an incredibly smart uh, adjustment 
by the league. And I think the third two-way contract, I've gone both ways on it. I feel like a little bit concerned that teams are going to use the third two-way as a reason to just roster 14 players, like for the entire year. And not every team will do that, certainly, but it will be a very well-spread tax avoidance measure in a way that concerns me a little bit. Yeah, and that's a double-edged sword of this. You know, there's the concern or the potential for teams to just sign three two-way guys um, and just have 14 guys on the roster. There's also the some train of thought that, like, hey, now you have an extra two-way spot, so you can bring in a rookie or bring in a second-year guy, give him a two-way contract, and be able to retain one of those 15 spots to still sign a veteran, right? So maybe this will keep more veterans on rosters, um, increase you know, job opportunities for them, not to mention the mid-level exception increases how much money they can get through the mid-level exception, right? Because that was always something teams were kind of saving up um, <clears throat> through free agency to eventually sign their own rookies. I think it'll also create potentially uh, 30 more G League spots, right? Like um, 30 more on G League rosters. So again, this should help just a little more lift up uh, the floor a little bit more for those young guys coming into the league and getting more opportunities potentially. So the final thing here is there will be a 7.5% increase in terms of the mid-level exception and a 30% increase in terms of the room exception. So a 7.5% you know, increase in the mid-level exception for this upcoming season will essentially be the mid-level exception going up by like a million dollars or so, something in that ballpark. Uh, and then the room exception, what, that's like two and a half. So that'll jump to like 3.3, 3.5 four maybe 3.5 somewhere in that ballpark so you're going to be able to get uh, a little bit more bang for your buck uh from those things you know for putting real numbers on it so like austin reeves you know if he gets a full mid-level exception contract from the lakers this summer it's going to go from like 450 451 to essentially like four you know 55 56 57 somewhere in that range off the top of my head i don't feel like doing uh hyper quick math beyond that so the numbers will increase just a little bit in terms of that let's get to this ownership side of the equation now because i think the ownership side is like so incredibly interesting to me I think that this CBA above all showed that there are like two groups of owners, like the haves in terms of financial flexibility and market size and the have nots. And I feel like what we learned from this negotiation is there are more have nots than there are haves in the league, because otherwise some of these stipulations that have gone through would not have gone through at the end of the day. Yeah. And this was clear, like that they wanted to curtail themselves, right? Like this was the owners again, trying to almost like make it, make it more equitable across the board for themselves, even maybe to their own detriment a little bit, right? Like the thing that we have to remember is that when someone goes into the luxury tax, especially at the level that the Warriors and the Clippers have been, the teams that don't go there are getting paid out, right? Like if you're not in the tax, you get money for it too. So, you know, this is them trying to, build a more equitable playing ground. I mean, I think there's a very strong argument to make that like spending a lot of money is not as huge a benefit to winning as you think it is. Certainly it's a leg up, like as always having more money will help you uh, in whatever field you're in. But like, if you look at the last 10 years, and I did this this morning, actually, uh, the last 10 years of the teams that were top three in the league in payroll each season, they had five titles, 
in nine conference finals appearances among them, right? Which seems like a lot, definitely, half the titles. When you look at it, it's the teams with LeBron and the Warriors, <laughs> or it's uh, the only other team that made it was the Thunder, which built internally anyway with Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook, right? So, like, all the teams that tried to just microwave a, you know, a roster by spending a crap ton of money all at once didn't get anything for it. Um, yep. And I think when you're trying to create more equity across the board in terms financially, um, a level playing field may not be what some of these owners want uh, because then you're blaming your money and your ability to spend money and your own, and it becomes a a case of your own competency. That's not necessarily a good thing. We've seen that over and over. I I was like pretty staggered by some of the decisions made in that regard. Like it, it feels a little bit, crazy to me even on the player side to agree to situations where we're stopping the clippers and warriors from like profligate spending you know what i mean because at the end of the day what that probably does is it decreases the amount that teams will spend on all of this right uh the fact that the clippers are spending an exorbitant amount of money you know steve Ballmer might be rich enough to where he's just like fuck it i don't care like go to hell everybody else you know I don't know that the Warriors will do that. Like the Warriors are now in an incredibly interesting situation this offseason where it becomes harder for them to retain all of their roster following the Jordan Poole extension with Draymond Green's free agency coming up, the Andrew Wiggins extension, Clay Thompson, I believe, is out of contract at the end of this season. Stephen Curry's enormous cap number, which is well earned. Like there is there is now a lot that shifts for them in terms of what they may or may not have been planning in a way that like, I think is concerning for a team like that, where they frankly now need to make like a fairly real and sizable playoff run in order to get like the gate revenue from their home games in order to potentially retain their team. It's a, it's a fascinating group of decisions here. And I, I really just think it's absurd to penalize ownership groups that are actually willing to spend. Like if you're well, willing that, to pay and you're willing to do it, fucking let these owners do it. Like we, we shouldn't be putting limits on owners paying players. The players are the product here, not the fucking teams that build the teams. Well, but like in the end, so this becomes like two things, right? Like the players in this case, I understand why they would agree to this because their BRI split remains the same. They're going to get paid either way. It really affects like, I don't know, if we're talking about three year, three teams per year above that second apron, right? And in terms of who will actually get paid and, you know, assume like the last five guys on the roster are minimum guys or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. You're talking about 30 jobs. The stars will get paid either way. And if you can't resign with the Warriors or the Clippers and they want to resign you, you probably can get a contract somewhere else. And all these other structures in the new CBA are going to make it easier for you to get paid somewhere else too, right? Like, cause there's a bigger mid-level, there's a bigger, um, you know, bigger other kinds of exceptions, right? And so it doesn't affect their wholesale ability. It just makes it harder for teams like the Warriors and the Clippers and, you know, let's say the Nets before this season to keep their teams together. But I don't think it's going to make it harder for players to get paid. It just might make it harder for for players to get paid by, like, those two individual teams. And that, to me, is understandable why they make that trade-off. Or by the teams they want to stay with. Like, if you're Draymond Green and you want to stay with the Warriors, like – 
this this now may be a thing where it becomes a problem for him and like instead of him going to the warriors he now has to go to the rockets or something like that if he wants to you know maximize his spending long term which like i don't know how much draymond cares about that it seems like he's about to get an enormous amount of money from warner brothers or tnt whatever uh, you know place he decides to go work after basketball because draymond green is incredibly intelligent and incredibly good at talking about basketball far better than either you or I will ever be at this thing. So Mm -hmm. like he has a long career ahead of him, but if you're Clay Thompson and you probably don't have a long career ahead of you talking, because it doesn't seem like you're interested in doing it as much as Draymond Green is, that becomes interesting in terms of where your future goes. And then the other part of this is like you said, it affects three teams over that second apron. What I would say is that, it actually impacts six teams currently in the league that are above that second apron level. So the Clippers and Warriors are two of them, but like Milwaukee is the third team, right? Milwaukee is not what you consider like an enormous market. Milwaukee is just paying to keep this core together because they think they owe it to the players and because they want to win. And I I don't think we should be limiting Milwaukee by doing this. And look, you look at the other three teams like Boston, Dallas, Phoenix, three other like sizable markets, right? Five of these six teams are sizable markets, but like you look at Milwaukee, you look at a team like Oklahoma city, like down the road. I don't know. Like I, I feel, I get why we're doing this and I get it's the ultimate goal of all of this. It feels like is to increase parity, right? It feels yeah. like the owners wanted to go more down the road of like an NBA or an NFL driven model where every team can win every season potentially. Right. Uh, or at least, you know, look, the Texans are not going to win the NFL uh, Super Bowl next year. But, you know, in two years, we've seen turns like that before, right? Like Jacksonville went from uh, a disaster in the Urban Meyer era to making the playoffs in Doug Peterson's first year. And then if they have a good offseason, you could see them theoretically making the Super Bowl next year. Like you can turn things a little bit quicker in the NBA now or in the NFL now. It feels like that's what they're trying to do in the NBA is trying to reduce the number of super teams that thus then uh, you know, basically make the league non-competitive. The, the interesting thing to me about this is like the way that they did this, right, to punish the higher spending teams, the higher spending owners, is that they could have just done this by just increasing tax penalties, right? For the teams in the tax or the teams above the second apron or the first apron, like however you want to structure it. You could have done this uh, like purely just by putting in more punitive financial measures, right? As a disincentive for a team like the Warriors spending into the like bajillions of dollars next season, right? They decided to do it by making it harder to build a basketball team, which to me kind of maybe shows the split between some of these owners in that some care a lot more about the basketball aspect of this and the ones that maybe don't care as much as about winning are wanting and willing to punish those owners that do care. I, I get, I get that. I get what you're saying to an extent. I do. I'm like trying I'm not, to. I'm not for these at all. Either. Like I'm not for or against these. Yeah. Things, uh, but like to me, I get why the players would sign off on it because I think the amount of yeah. money that they'll get through the course of this deal is probably worth the trade off in terms of like hampering the teams at the very top. Uh, to me, it's interesting as you said the kind of internecine battles within the ownership groups altogether. Yeah. So you know, the second apron now is seventeen and a half million dollars above the tax level. Those teams also will be limited in terms of their 
optionality and functionality uh, within roster building as well. Mm-hmm. And I think this is actually what like annoys me more than anything else uh, within this agreement for, with like within the ownership battles of it all. So those teams will not have use of the taxpayer or the taxpayer mid-level exception. So they no longer, for instance, will be able to sign Joe Ingles with the Milwaukee Bucks, Dante DiVincenzo with the Golden State Warriors. So you won't be able to add to your team, basically, when you go above this limit above minimum salary players, essentially. Or, the you know, uh, you get the biannual exception. Like, I'd imagine that that's a real option for these teams still. Although, you know, there hasn't been reporting on that one way or another, I guess is maybe the way to put it. Uh, then you also look at the trade rules that are coming into play. And I am trying to pull those up as we speak where essentially you're not going to be able to utilize cash in trades. So like you can't, you know, trade $5 million for a second round pick into the future. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is something that a number of teams have started to do in order just to get like second rounders, right? Um, you can't move first round picks in drafts that are seven years out in the future, which right. again, limits your optionality. You now can basically only move three first round picks max uh, of your own. If you just have all of your own picks and you don't have other, you know, picks that have come in and out. And then finally, you actually can't take on more money that is being than is being sent out in the trade. So like if you're sending out a $15 million player in a trade, you can't then take back 15 million and one dollars in that trade, Uh, which actually does like significantly limit the optionality of even trades for these teams. I feel like these are quite punitive. If I'm being completely Mm -hmm. honest, then I feel like they are. I I feel like I don't love it. I, it does put an onus now on – I wonder what it does to the trade market um, because it puts an onus on especially these highest spending teams to retain their draft picks, right? Like that it might does. just be their best way to get future talent, right? Not only like – not only to help the team like the next season, the season after that, but just to be able to reload down the line of some of the big contracts they you know gave out age and probably a few of them will age poorly, but they won't be able to – make up for with someone with the room uh, with the you know with an exception signing someone in free agency or just like using a slot to pick up a bigger contract as we saw like the warriors did um with the d'angelo russell contract so i'm gonna be very curious what it does to fix like will it make them even you know will will make them harder to get we've seen them just like being traded the last two years like nothing basically like does that change all of a sudden my immediate reaction when I saw all of this and I tweeted this out on Saturday night while I was at the final four and all of this was getting reported. All of this just says to me that the draft is now going to be way more important in team building. Uh, the draft is obviously the primary way to get stars in the NBA still. I mean, you look across the league, you know, Devin Booker was drafted by the Suns. Stephen Curry was drafted by the Warriors. Giannis was drafted by the Bucks. Nikola Jokic was drafted by Denver. Joel Embiid was drafted by the 76ers. Jason Tatum was drafted by the Celtics. You can go on and on and on, right? The draft is still the primary way to get superstars across the league. I know that we live in a free agency and trade-driven, you know, content landscape now, but it is still the draft. Like, that is the key. But this, because of these limitations, because of everything that occurred within this new CBA – 
the draft is even more important. Retaining your draft picks and having cheap guys on salary that can be building blocks for your team earlier and be rotation players for your team earlier. I honestly wonder if, like, frankly, this now puts a value on older draftable players, like more veteran college players that could step in and play a role a little bit quicker. I don't think that is true for like this year or next year, but I think that like 25, 26, 27, 28, that could be true down the road as we settle into this collective bargaining agreement. But more than anything, like these mechanisms to retain players now via earlier extensions, no you know limitations on designated rookie extensions, the fact that, you know, you can't, it, it's now harder to move draft picks, basically. All of this says to me that the draft is more important now than it was a week ago uh, before this agreement. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And I'm curious to see how it changes activity in and around the draft. You know, will you know, it just the inability to trade picks, the need to keep that talent in house. Will it change the way the contracts are given out, especially to kind of the middle class of the NBA um, and put it to even more of kind of a stars and scrubs, basically type of contract structure, right? Yeah. Like I know the mid-level exception is going to be growing um, and maybe that there will still be teams using that exception specifically, but what does it do to the guys kind of in that particular part of the market? So I, I'm going to be very curious to see how this all plays out and probably like two years from now, I just feel like we might be seeing a totally different type of behavior by the, the best teams in the league because of what they have to prioritize and the resources that, that they don't have anymore. Yeah. Like the middle class of the league is very interesting to me now. Like, do we see a lot of those, you know, miles Turner style extensions where, you know, he's going to be paid $22 million or whatever it is, 20, five million dollars uh each of the next two years do we see uh as many norman powell's getting like big money extensions do we see uh frankly like the entire clippers roster getting right. uh all of these random extensions that we have seen i honestly don't know the answer to that i think it's going to be fascinating to watch play out M- my immediate reaction though is kind of similar to what you just said I do really wonder if we go into like a stars and scrubs kind of model here moving forward. I think that's like a real distinct possibility within this thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think the NBA probably better than the other leagues has been able to stave that off just in terms of the contract allocations across the league, like compared to baseball, compared to um, the NFL. I don't know much about hockey. I'll be honest. Um, But compared to hockey has a pretty thriving, uh, like middle-class market still. Yeah. All right, so there you go. So hockey does. But like compared to baseball and to the NFL, I think the NBA has done pretty well in terms of maintaining that middle class. And I don't know if that changes over the next few years because of the CBA. Um, because if you're just more kind of tied in now, I, we do have to remember that. We do have to remember. It does seem, again, we haven't seen all the final details, but just based on what's been reported and just from what I understand, it does seem that there will be a little uh, more ease of of movement and spending for the teams that are just like a little bit above the tax, maybe as an incentive to be willing to go over the tax compared to this previous CBA. So maybe that kind of creates a little more spending on those margins, right? Compared to creating Mm -hmm. less spending on the very, very top uh, of this payroll, you know, stratification, but we'll see again, we have to see the final details and see how this all plays out. 
Yeah. And, and on some level too, I think the free agency market is like driven by the market on some level too. Like uh, this off season, there are not stars available. <laughs> like right. there just aren't. So like the Rockets we- have so much cap space and they're going to have to spend it on these middle tier guys if they want to get better. Well, honestly, the thing that came to mind for me and tell me what you think of this, like in terms of the immediate impact of what I understand from the CBA and just thinking it through is like, we might see the further erosion of free agency. Um, if you have longer extensions available for rookies now, you have larger extensions available for veterans, right? Um, yeah. we, already see, yeah. we already saw a lot of guys take extensions, especially if you're a star. There's no point to hit free agency. You just take the max extension, and then if you want to bail, you bail later. But now yeah. do we just see guys sign to extensions and figure out later, and then what is the value of cap space if that becomes the case? You know, Like we have what? All, really the teams that have the most cap space this offseason, um, say for a few, are some of the worst teams in the league. I think this is a really good point. I think that this is right. And, you know, I was thinking about it in terms of like the draft, but I think you're right to think about it in terms of like the erosion of free agency on some level. Uh, you know, on some level, look, like I think Demonis Sabonis's like max extension number now is still like not quite high enough. Like I think yeah, that it's, I agree. yeah, I think it's like four years and like a hundred and 10 or something like yeah, that something like, like he shouldn't take that <laughs> yeah and like i think DeJo- i think dejounte murray's is still He's around there like, yeah a contract i think it's even less than that to be honest like i think it's like 24 or something like that right. um a year to start so it, it is interesting to frame it like that and i think you're right like and look here's the other thing too is the cba gets going it wouldn't surprise me if we start to see teams well, I guess that they don't have to sign them to lower deals now because the extension number is higher uh, in terms of percentage. But like, I do think that you're right about all of this. Like, I think that, you know, teams are probably going to be a little bit more aggressive in trying to extend their players uh, off of the draft. Like, I, I think that this is a really interesting concept for sure. Yeah. And we'll see where it goes. Like they did make a restricted free agency easier. I think that, that was reported somewhere that it's a 10% bump for the qualifying offer. And now you have a, a day basically to decide whether to sign to match. Um, yeah. The restricted free agency just makes up such a small part of free agency anyway. Um, and we saw the best players get extended. And, you know, there's usually there's kind of those guys at the margins, but maybe they don't hit restricted free agency anymore. If you can offer them more money and you can offer longer term, right. And they want to lock that in. I think that's happened in baseball now. Um, so much as you see some of these young players just get offered these huge like multi-year contracts that buy out some of their free agent years because they're upfront being guaranteed like a hundred million dollars. And if yeah. you're, let's say in Emmanuel quickly, right. Um, and you can get offered five years, a hundred million dollars. Maybe that's a little bit below your like true market value. If you were to hit free agency, it's hard to turn down a hundred dollars, a hundred million dollars. If you've never had like a real full NBA contract before and you're like 23. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Last two notes here to hit are more broad points. The All-NBA and awards now, it looks like, are going to be uh, 65 games or more in order to qualify for these. I, I think this is stupid, if I'm being completely honest. Uh, I, I think I think there will be some exceptions to make it a little more semi-permeable. Uh, if I remember back to my biology classes in terms of cell membranes. But I do wonder what the unintended consequences are going to be. Yeah. So like, you know, our good colleague, John Hollinger wrote an idea that like, uh, you know, will we see some like shenanigans like Drew Holiday coming in and just like playing for 30 seconds in order to get his $225,000 bonus? I think it was two years ago. Uh, Maybe. 
like wouldn't stun me if that was the case. But he said after the story was published, he was told by a well-connected source, there will be provisions to guard against this type of shenanigan. Uh, I think that we should just give voters, you know, the leeway to be able to make these decisions. Like, I think this is just silly. Like, don't do this. The the other thing that it's not about the voters though. That's the thing. It's about the NBA trying to get their star players to play more often. That's, that's what it it comes down to. That's a hundred percent right. And by the way, like the fact that these uh, measures by all reports still, you know, we haven't seen anything to the contrary yet are still not connected or are still connected. I'm sorry to, you know, whether or not you make an all NBA team, whether or not you win MVP, whether or not you win defensive player of the year, uh, th- that basically qualifies you for supermax language or qualifies mm-hmm. you for certain things. I don't like the idea of forcing guys to play potentially when they're hurt because of there could be like $40 million on the line if you don't play like the final three games of the year, because you missed 18 earlier in the year, missed 15 earlier in the year. Right. Yeah. To me, it's like, interesting. Like how bad. teams, teams approach this. Um, yeah. Like will teams, well, two things. Will teams like they're cause they're the ones who are the majority of the players, maybe not like a Kawhi, but like majority of the players, the teams handle the load management schedule for lack of a better phrasing for it. Right. They're the ones who approach the players and say, hey, we want you to sit out these game, this amount of games this season. Or, you know, we think like your load based on our internal metrics is saying like you probably need a break or you're not fully at capacity, like whatever it is. Yep. Um, will the teams just be less likely to say something now, right? Maybe even when it is like on the margins detrimental to the player, right? Like not in a sense of like, hey, you're going to blow out your knee but just like you won't play as well or something like that. Like, it's going to be interesting to me how like team performance staffs handle all this. Like, I know no one really cares about the team performance staffs, but it's going to be interesting to me how they handle all this. Right. Cause now you have a lot of competing interests. You have the team, you have the player, you have your own job, right? Like all these things are going to be yeah. interesting to me. Um, I don't know how that's going to play out. Like I just legit have no idea. It's just something I, I wonder how it will go. Um, and, and obviously if these things are tied to, all NBA, MVP voting, Depoy, like all these awards. And we have contracts with incentive structures based on these awards. Um, what kind of shenanigans can we see? Yeah, I think we might see quite a few, if I'm being completely honest. For both teams uh, and players, both of them. Yeah, no, it's not just going to be on one side. It's absolutely going to be on two. Uh, okay, and then the final thing here before we get out of here is – play-in tournament or what not the play-in tournament the in-season tournament Uh, so there's an in-season tournament that could arrive as soon as next season uh it will include pool play like baked into the regular season schedule starting in november eight teams will advance to a single elimination tournament in december uh final four held at a neutral site with las vegas prominent in the discussion i think it's that all of the players get like five hundred thousand dollars if they win the in-season tournament so you know real financial incentive to give a shit about this thing uh, i don't know man like I, it's fine like i, I don't <laughs> dislike it or like it i guess like it could be something that could be fun it could be something that i'm here for the content of the in-season tournament uh i'm sure that i will get branded opportunities for the podcast uh to break down the in-season tournament uh in the nba but like, it seems fine. It seems like it, a fine addition. 
I, I mean, I like, I don't know. I'm a European soccer fan. And like, I, you know, yeah. when the European soccer tournaments, what make them interesting to me, at least, is like, I'm a Chelsea fan. Um, when they're playing in Champions League, they're playing a team from Spain or from Italy, a team that they would not otherwise play, right, in the course of just in-season play. And that's what makes it interesting to me. I don't know how the NBA gets across that line and makes it interesting. Well, well like, so, so here's the question. Like, how, do you, how much do you care about the FA Cup? Uh, I care about the FA Cup when it gets to the highest levels, right? Like when usually you're in a semifinal or a quarterfinal and you're playing a team that's in the champion uh, championship round or uh, or in the – sorry, the championship league or like the EPL itself. But even that, you're talking about like thousands of teams and there's still a high likelihood that your team is not going to play a team they normally play, right? Like to me, it's something like the Carling Cup, which I, I, I don't know, whatever. Um you know, like, I don't know how the NBA makes it interesting for fans. I'm sure they've got a plan in place. We'll see what the application is. You see how they're going to try to make it interesting for teams. In the WNBA, it seems like um, their version of this was a success, at least amongst teams early on. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a financial bonus there, and their finances are not what they are for NBA players too, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, I'm I'm more skeptical of the in-season tournament. I To me, if I had to guess, I think it's a smart way. This is not reporting, but just me thinking it through. It's like, it seems like a smart way to attach another TV package or rights package uh, yeah. and sell it off to someone, right? Like, hey, buy the rights uh, Amazon for our in-season tournament, get the final four and all that stuff. I, I actually do wonder if they look at this as like a potential maybe the word is like a potential testing ground for a streamer. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Like maybe you do give this to Amazon and you know, I I think that they're going to like, this does not come from reporting either. Just to be clear. I think they're going to keep like the same, like, like status quo broadcast. Like maybe they don't uh, keep the same partners, but I think they're going to have a heavy broadcast component. I cannot see a world where they go like fully down the road of streamers at this point for the NBA, unless the RSN market just like completely falls off and the streamers are the ones like paying the exorbitant dollar amounts, which not impossible, but you know, you, you would know this better. Like, does all of this sound right in terms of what I'm saying? I think they'll have a streaming partner of some sort. Um, okay. in the next media rights deal for 2025. The nice thing is if this in-season, well, the nice thing for them, doesn't matter to me. Um, the nice thing for them is if it comes into play next season, um, how are they going to handle that? Like, is that another kind of thing they can sell off to your point? Like there's two teams that are going to play 83 yeah. games. Uh, does someone get that 83rd game? You know, do we put on Apple TV and see how that goes or something like that? Right. I, well, I they, think they, sold, the- they had to sell off the playing tournament too when they did that, right? They didn't right. just give that to ESPN, I don't think, right? Um, no, because those are like completely outside of the, the, the schedule of the regular season. Right. And you're right. And so like, we'll be, I'll be curious to see who gets this, who gets the rights to these. Cause at least the early part of the, I think I have this right. The early part of the playing tournament is still part of the regular season. Uh, yeah. they just like kind of get counted for both things. Well, this yeah. is the other thing we got, we got to see the rules for all these. Um, but yeah, I, I think with the next TV deal, I think there will be a streamer involved in some sort of way for sure. I think it'll be involved in some sort of way. I just feel like the biggest part of it is going to be the broadcast side still. Like, I I think we are one TV deal away from like, yeah, going nuts on the streamer side still. Yeah. I think those will be, that'll be the anchor, but you'll need internet to watch some basketball games. Yeah. 
which uh, I'm all for. Uh, as someone who watches the basketball only on the internet, uh, I, I am I am all for it. Please, just like go all to streaming. Like that'd be great for me. But uh, I, I don't see that happening for all of my uh, beautiful American friends, of which I am in your country right now, and I guess I'm in my country because I'm still a citizen of this country. So, Vork, uh, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people you've got coming up, everything that you want to get out there and plug. Uh, funny enough, I write at the same place as you do, a little place called The Athletic. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Mike Vorknoff. I don't ever recommend that anyone goes on Twitter. So, you know, don't listen to me. <laughs> um, and other than that, I don't know. Go outside and read a book. That's all I got. Oh, there we go. I just read a book. It was great. It was super What'd fun. you read? What'd I read, read Unscripted, the Sumner Redstone. Uh, oh, like, I just heard about that. Yeah, I want to read that. Like planning book. Yeah, yeah. It is. Is it good? bonkers it is the craziest book uh that you will read uh by far my next one is women talking i read every night i'm here for it vork i i I recommend everybody reads i I want to so bad i'm reading i just started don delillo's white noise i'm trying to get through that as fast as i can i need to get to a nonfiction book i might do unscripted next i read white noise last year it was delillo is not for me but (laughs) i can understand why people enjoy it (laughs) it's definitely a little weird but i like weird yeah uh definitely a different kind of vibe in terms of literature okay uh go to the athletic i will have something coming on thursday that i can't quite talk about yet uh i will have something coming later this week uh including like all of the constant transfer churn that i write about uh i have to write about tyler perry the uh conference usa player of the year that just hit the portal today i have to write about uh, who knows? Let, let's check the portal while we're while we're live on air here, Vork. Let's see. Let's see who has hit the portal most recently. Maybe this will be a running bit for the show. At the end yeah, of every I like show, this. I will take a look at uh, take a look at the portal. See see who has hit the portal most recently. Uh, I like this. I like this new bit. It's a new segment for you. Let's yeah, hit the portal. New, new segment. New segment. Let's hit the portal. David Jones from St. John's is the most recent person to hit the portal. It looks like uh, we've got some fun ones in here today. Uh, not nothing, nothing too too crazy yet. It looks like oh, Aaron Estrada from Hofstra. Believe he was the uh, player of the year in the CAA. If he wasn't the player of the year, he should. Yeah, been I think close. I think he was. I, I only yeah. know because they beat Rutgers in the first round of the NIT. There you go. See, so yeah, Exciting no, we've got a. Game. We, we've got some we've got some portal names for me to write about today. It'll be delightful. Uh, okay, keep it locked here. Uh, we will be back later this week with more NBA stuff as the NBA season comes to a close and we start to get a, you know maybe a little bit more clarity on what the play in picture looks like. Thanks to Mike for coming on. Until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.